Hi, everyone. Good to be back with you again for another Campfire Conversation. And tonight we have Wayne Jacobson. Let me start by saying this. First of all, Dan Ainsworth sent me the book, Finding Church, the most recent book by Wayne. And he said, I I know this will resonate with your heart. And it most certainly did. So uh, let me read you a couple of the titles. As soon as I read the chapter title and then your subtitle, your subtext to that, and then you went off and into several pages writing about it, that really captured me. So I'm just going to throw a couple of them out and then, and then let you go where you want to go. And here are just a few of them. One was devotion. And, and so as, as you went into these characteristics, what you called these were the telltale signs of the church that rises out of Jesus' new creation. And so you gave a number of characteristics. One of them was, one chapter was called In the First Place, subtitle, Jesus himself is our overwhelming focus. The second was, not made with hands, subtitle, trusting Jesus' work over human effort. Another, devotion without obligation. Community grows, growth from desire of a transformed heart. The next one, gatherings without meetings. The depth of relationship is valued over pre-planned meetings. I mean, this is resonating with everybody listening right now, I'm sure. So just a couple more. Authority without hierarchy. Authority rises from the revelation of Jesus, not from well-crafted structures. And then two more. Order without control. Order comes from mutual respect and affection, not from policies and rules. And the last one here is unity without conformity. Unity emerges from wholehearted agreement not from conform, conformity imposed from the outside. So all of those, as I read those, I thought that's what it typically feels like in church. And, and so I, I want you to launch into that, but let me say one more thing I've observed about you, and, and I know I've spoken way too much already, and that, but that is this. And, and I told you this when we got together, Wayne. I'm very taken by the fact that you have a critical eye, but not a critical spirit. You really you have the ability to see and articulate what's going on in terms of church today and the body of Christ in kind of that form, but you don't have a critical spirit as you speak about it. You have a very humble, graceful heart about it, and and I see that rarely, and I so appreciate that about you. Hmm. I appreciate that. Thank you. Now you want me to talk? <laughs> Please. I, I, I about, any or, about any or all of that, huh? My correct. You started anywhere you want. <laughs> well, I think the, the list of things you, you read down really spring from the very first statement that I think what came clear to me in working on this book, and this is uh, one of the few books I've done where it, it totally changed in the writing of the book. I, I had one thing in mind and got in the middle of it and took a detour and uh, really was less about church and structures and or lack of and really what it is to awaken in the new creation. I mean, Jesus being the firstborn of a new creation, not only the, the creator of the first creation, but then the firstborn of a new creation and really suggests scripturally that, that he intended to start a whole new race of men and women. And, and I think most of our the structures we use to manage Christian things are very much old creation realities. In the same way business or military or politics manages people, there's no difference. 
and uh, it began to drive my heart to really what what is what makes life different in the new creation and then is it manageable is the same management techniques possible and that that's kind of launched me on this list of things that began to see that the way I'd been living for quite a while, this wasn't all stuff that I, I would like to live someday, but had been living, and, and be able to put it in a different words, that the new creation one makes us not people so self-centric to my own needs or desires. It actually frees me to live inside the affection of the Father, and then out of that affection, love others. And in the loving of others, one you, you lose your heart to manage them, first of all, and Beyond that, you you find that loving people is very different than exploiting them to make the machinery I want to run smoothly run smoothly, and uh, so that's it. Kind of that language put a whole different way of looking at what we look at as the body of Christ, and most of what we call church are heavily managed institutions, and they have good pieces to them. There's good elements in them, but they never rise to the to reflect that new creation that Jesus wanted us to to put on display to the world because we would live differently and act differently if we lived out of love than if we lived out of anything else. And so that's the journey I'm on. I'm still trying to sort out what it is to to live loved and to love others freely and fully every day. Yeah, you know, Wayne, one of the things I picked up as I'm, and I don't know if you had it in these words in particular as much as a sense I got from reading so much was, this idea that, you know, you were kind of saying, look, I understand how the church got here. I was a pastor for years. I understand how it kind of falls in that direction. So so now let me ask you, how do you think we kind of got to where the church is today in, in, our, in our culture? Um, but in terms of how we do things? Yeah, this whole thing that you were talking about. I mean, we we got here little by little, and it probably started with a good heart, and then it ended up with a concern of we've got to be more. This isn't working right. How can we make this work better? And then it turned into this institution, as you were saying. Yeah, I get when I read when I read the epistles, I, I get the idea that it it happened pretty quickly. That already Galatia had already decided that following his spirit wasn't going to be enough. We need some rules to keep us contained and. Paul's screaming at them, who bewitched you? Before your eyes, Jesus was clearly portrayed as crucified. How do you, who began by the Spirit, think you're going to do it by human flesh? And I, to me, that it points to that always. There's always something in our humanity that wants to accomplish great things for God. It, that, that's where our, our love for him first goes. I want to do great things for him. But then we're doing it out of our own wisdom and, and best ideas and... There's no bad motives in that, other than the fact that we're incapable of the task. And that God's invited us to come along with him, which to me is such a different reality. I, I don't need you to do anything for me. I, I've got the creation under under my belt. I'm good. I just want you to come with me as I do what I do in the world and invite you to come along. And it seems like we have this need, and it, it may be even, it may be as crass as to say a lot of it's driven by someone's need to make a living. So I've, I've, I want to be a full-time guy, and I've got to figure out a way that this, which would now some people are taking the calling pastors who plant churches as pastorpreneurs. I've got to find something I can plant that gets enough people to keep, create the critical mass that allows me to, to, to make my wage and that keeps me oftentimes from maybe following those nudges of the Spirit. I even And I remember this as a pastor often, we feel like, 
God was putting something on our heart. And then our next question was always, well, how are we going to pay the bills if we do that? I mean, what's going to what's going to drive the income? What's going to? And it, I just think it may be as crass as either people's need for power or people's need for income that have caused us to create man-made systems, and then we kind of cram the church into that and, and think we can do it successfully when history proves we've never done it successfully. Hmm. Well, and, and well I now, loved your, I've loved your expression um, that you had. You know, either you said it to me or you wrote it. I think I saw it where you'd written it, but um, this idea of does something have the... the um, Scent of the father or the stench of human sweat. <laughs> and, and I'll tell you what, that speaks volumes to me as I look at things in my life, as I look at my day, and I, I can put that grid over it, and it becomes pretty clear to me which it is. It's just really helpful. Yeah, it helps me when opportunities come my way. You know, I get more opportunities to do various things or get involved in various projects than I have time to do. And it really is easy to sit back, and I think that I'll start with, the, you know, really the things of the kingdom have a fragrance of Father about them that are pretty compelling. I mean, it's just, it seems wonderful. It came up in a conversation I actually had with a man in Australia. And I, we were talking about a, a new book that was out that was, uh, we were compatible with a lot of principles in the book, but it was all principle-driven, not relationship-driven. So I was talking to him about it, and I said, what do you think of this book? And he said, well... A lot of good stuff in it, isn't there? But he said it doesn't quite have the fragrance of father about it. And I just thought, man, that put a finger on it for me because it didn't. It was it was the right priorities, but still human effort. We can do this if we put the right tools together, and it, we we can do this for God. And uh, so I, that's been something that's been part of my life now for twenty years. Just trying to discern, is this, is this, does this seem to have God's fragrance in it? Is this the fragrance of Father about it, or is this more smell like Wayne or somebody else's human effort? Mm-hmm. Wayne, this is John. I read your article, um, Why I Don't Go to Church, about 10 years ago. Mm. And then about two years later, um, God invited me into this journey outside the institution. And so for eight years now, I've been I've been living outside of that. And I've, I love my years inside the institution because there there were a lot of things I, I drew from that, I gained from that. Sure. But I thought at the time, you know, I wonder what it would have been like had I, I came to Christ in 1973, what if I had never been inside the institution but had really lived in this kind of relationship I have now all those years? And I just wonder, have you ever run across anybody who's really lived their Christian life outside the institution for the most of their life? And if you have, what what did that look like for them? Yeah, I'm, I'm, gee, I, I've met a lot of people now. I've been I've been doing about 20 years. I know people in Dublin that have been doing about 40, mm-hmm. uh, 45. I know people in Melbourne, Australia, have been doing it uh, 35 to 40 years as well. Uh, and I continue to meet people around the world who have just found a different dynamic. My 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 granddaughter, interesting enough, never never been to a church. She's 10 years old now. She came in for Easter dinner at my house asking if we could have communion with dinner and now she's talking about being baptized and she's on an incredible journey it doesn't have any of the overlay of religious obligation or i've got to jump through this hoop to meet someone's expectation what it looks like over the long haul is just people that are free to love and free to follow jesus and incredibly supportive honest relationships with others but nobody's building anything, so no one's exploiting people or feeling exploited. 
that's an incredible reality. That's an incredible feeling. And people get to grow up just out of conversations and asking questions and exploring what a life in Jesus looks like. And there's lots of love and compassion and help. But because we're not wasting a ton of time in what my friend from New Zealand calls meetings about meetings, and if any of you have been involved in an institution, there's a lot of meetings about meetings. There's just so much time wasted in political realities and planning meetings that we really don't have time to have the conversations with hungry hearts that are the most nurturing thing we can do for people. And So for the last 20 years, being able to live in that freedom, and, and really, when I was a pastor even, I, I, when I read the Gospels, I see Jesus very rarely in, well, I don't see him in any meeting he ever planned. I don't see him setting a, an outreach meeting or a, a lecture series and inviting people to it and renting a hall and let's do that. He He seemed to navigate through life and find plenty of opportunity to engage people. And at the time I was discovering that, I was still pastoring, I'm going, I'm not involved in anything I'm not pre-planning, anything that I haven't created the environment myself and invited others to it. And I really wanted to be environments with people and didn't even know how to do that. just felt totally at a loss because most of what we had done was so artificial, it needed a meeting to make it look right. And uh, when you try and do that in a conversation, it just seemed awkward and artificial, and people would kind of shy away from it. So, so Wayne, this is Sam Williamson. Um, yep. So in your book, early on, you you sort of talk of you don't sort of you do talk about how the Christian Church early on sort of adopted. This is after Constantine adopted, actually co-opted. A lot of the Roman institutions, you know, we took their temples, we took their organizations, and, uh, you know, their senators became our bishops and and that kind of stuff. It, it seems very institutional, and yet you're saying that Jesus didn't spend that much time actually in the temple, and he didn't even spend that much time in the synagogue. I think when people think about a church, they think immediately about a building. They picture a building in their mind. It could be the White Steeple Church, or it could be the you know, the the Lowe's warehouse that was taken over, but they picture a building. How do you picture a church? Yeah, they, they picture a building, or the other thing people picture is a meeting. Even a lot of house church people will talk about the meeting, and they go to the meeting, and they don't have any kind of touch with each other anywhere else during the week. I One of the descriptions I like about church is it's friends and friends of friends. It's this growing network of people who are sharing a conversation about who God is and how they live in Him. And in that sharing of that conversation, there's going to be ways they collaborate together, things God asks them to do together, ways they participate together. But it really, it's, it, it would be more family than building or meeting. It's a family. And my family, right. we get together all the time, but we never have a meeting. My family, if, you, if my family got together and we didn't have food on the table and somebody's trying passing out an agenda or an order of service, my kids would look at me like I'm some kind of freak. Because families don't do that. Enterprises do that. And so when you see it as a family and it's the interconnection of relationships, and yeah, we're together a lot, but it's not focused on a meeting or a location at all. So it's more organic than mechanical. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. So when, but we're what afraid you... of that because we can't control it. Something mechanical we can control. This time, this day, we are going to get together. We're going to accomplish this. Our name is. We do identity with it. 
and and then it's something we feel like we can control. If God shows up, great. If He doesn't show up, we still have a plan. And when you when you, when you go to the wildness of well, I'm going to learn to live inside His reality and watch it unfold. I think that's closer to the incarnation, wasn't it? When Jesus didn't want to create sacred space, the point of the incarnation was that He could live with us in whatever space we are in. You know, you early on you said. Um, that, that a lot of people have are doing a set of things, or having meetings, or organizing things. It's not necessarily out of bad, some, out of something bad inside themselves. They want, they just want to do something for God. You know, you, yep. you get converted, you meet the Lord, you want to do something for God. But I think I, I think you're being gracious. And let me put it this way, and maybe even too gracious. Okay. You know, about I don't know, twelve months ago, fifteen months ago, I was reading about uh, Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. And I gotta say, I really, really, in a bad way, sympathize with Peter. I mean, I can imagine Peter saying, "No, let me wash your feet, Jesus." Isn't and I don't think that's a good place in us. I mean, there's something good that we want to do something for Jesus, but isn't it isn't it in some ways a bad place in us that we want to do stuff for Jesus more than receive something from Him? Oh, and I think I was trying to draw that contrast. The old creation, even when we become Christian in the old creation, it's trying to do something for God. And I think what Jesus really invites to is come be with me. Be with me. We'll do stuff together. But the more important thing is being together. And so I do think that motive in us that wants to do something great for God, I'm not saying it's a bad motive. It's just always bad results. <laughs> I think I think there's a bit of a bad motive, but I I'll go with I'll go with your phrase. It's too good. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know that that takes me back in one of my favorite lines out of the shack, and it probably was the line that hit me the hardest and deepest. Is when Jesus said to Mac, Mac, you just need to learn to live loved. And I thought, holy smokes, I don't know that I've ever learned just simply to live. Love. I've always been on this performance treadmill. And even even in our religious environments, we we make love part of that treadmill. I mean, we the scripture we always quote is "Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and neighbor yourself." It's a great command. And and it's like, oh gosh, when what day do I ever do that? If if love begins with me trying to love God with all my heart, I I really don't have much of a chance of that succeeding. But when Jesus gave us a new command, I think that replaced the old great command. That old great command was from the old covenant. The new one is, love one another like I've loved you. So it really starts with him. When I'm loved, when I wake up in the morning, know that I'm loved, even in the face of my brokenness, my doubts, my struggles, my, uh, you know, whatever, my temptations, I'm loved. The Father loves me. Now I live out of that love, and sin gets displaced, Wayne's efforts get displaced, and I get to live in much freer air. Unfortunately, we haven't, we haven't focused nearly so much on what it is to live that way and how to help people do it. Because it's, I, I, I think it's too risky. I think it means, well, what if people really don't get it? I'd rather tell them what to do and then make them do it. And you know, the definition I was given of leadership way back in the day was getting people to do what they wouldn't otherwise freely choose to do, which is a stupid <laughs> definition of leadership. That's manipulation. You know, it's how do we well, come alongside people and win them into Father's affection and teach them to live out of that space. That's where everything in our life gets righted over time. Which, which means, 
in a certain sense, we're not just saying the church is a place where we go out and love, but the church is, the, is a place where we receive God's love first. I mean, it, it is an act of receiving before we can give. Absolutely. I, I was on a retreat, I don't know, two or three weeks ago, and I asked the guy what the gospel is. He said, the gospel is love the Lord your God with heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He said, that is the gospel. <laughs> I, it, it, I, it's not the gospel for me, because the moment... <laughs> Someone says that's life. I'm saying that I'm a goner. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, that's I not the goner. I don't do the first, and I don't do the second. How is that good news? Yeah. <laughs> and the good news is you are deeply loved in spite of how broken and lost you are. That's that's the now good that, news. I, that's good. <laughs> and out of that, if we if we could help people, if we could learn to live out of it, and I, you know what I one of my favorite phrases these days is in First John, where and I like the the sense of it. From, from the Greek verbs where John, John is saying, we have come to know and come to rely on the love God has for us. And I'm like, I love the process in that. I love an old man saying, we are coming to know or we have come to know. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm going, you know, I, don't, I, could, I couldn't say that about me today. I don't fully know what it is to lo- live in his love and to rely on it. But I'm coming to know and I'm coming to rely on that love. And where I do, life opens up in very spacious ways. And where I don't, Man, that's where Wayne just does dumb stuff and hurtful things and makes mistakes and does silly stuff. And I'm trying to learn to live more in that other space, which is living loved or the life of the new creation. And when people share that together, to me, that's what the church is. It's people sharing that life, however rudimentary it is in our lives. We're beginning to share that. And that becomes infectious. One of the things you said in your book, you said, I was caught between two worlds the world of self-effort or performance-based religion, and the new creation growing inside of me. I didn't know it at the time, but the two are incompatible. I think that's a great word for the contrast there, the incompatibility of that, of the performance-based religion versus our new creation growing inside of us. Yeah, and it's scary when we don't know that. Well, and one of the things that that, that I think this is the essence, one of the essences that I've gotten out of your book is it's like you're you're inviting us to let that new creation loose and let it come up to life and be what God intended for it to be. Yeah, that's part of it. And, And it really answers to, I think it's already been trying to, which is why people end up, the subtitle of the book is, what, what if there really is something more? I think any of us who've been deeply involved in religious institutions, and they're, they're great. There's some elements that are just wonderful about it. And then you reach kind of a ceiling where it feels like, gosh, there's got to be something more than this. This isn't enough. And to me, that is that new creation wakening up. And we keep trying to cram it in a box that it doesn't fit, and we don't understand why when we, we suffer the effects of that conflict you just read about, we don't know why. We don't, we don't know that my human effort and the Father's love awakening in me are two incompatible realities. And so instead of seeing it that way, we keep trying to merge them, and it always breaks apart and spills out. Instead of, you know, sometimes I live like I'm not loved and life's pretty sucky there, and other times I live life like I'm loved and life's better there, so I want to learn more how to live loved and be involved in more transformational experience than simply trying to put my human effort to something I think I should do. So explain to us the picture of two people, one person who's living out of trying to love others and one person who's living out of being loved. 
how is their life going to look different? Um, well, I, 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 externally, I don't, I don't know that it will a lot. Internally, tremendously. The person trying to love others, particularly if they're doing that to, what, out, of their, own, out of their own power. <laughs> yeah, but if they're trying to, you know, earn status with God or they're just trying to be benevolent or when I'm trying to love you uh, that way, what I'm basically, I've made you the extension of my needs. So I'm actually, the guise of loving you, I'm actually exploiting you. If I'm living love, if I know God has me, has my back, has my life, now I'm in the world, I, I don't do love as an act. I simply find myself loving others in the same way I've been loved, that that affection that I've got. Now, I, I'm not trying to love somebody. I have an affection for them, and that affection puts me in their world, in their time, in their way, rather than I'm trying to love you in the name of Jesus and do something for you you don't want done, or trying to manipulate you to a choice you're not ready to make. So so I challenge you on a little bit where you say they, on the outside they could look the same, and I, I think they can. I, I, I don't challenge you too, too strenuously. Oh, you can challenge me all you want. It won't bother me at all. <laughs> I, I can tell that you don't mind. But, but isn't it true that, it, you know, listen, if we're living our life perfectly and God loves us, well, of course he loves us because we're perfect. But if we if, if we acknowledge if we know we're screwing up, and God loves us, doesn't that give us an ability to love someone else who's screwing up, just a different scent than? Oh, I, I think I mean, it's and nice. so, in a certain would... sense, it can't look the same because because we're gonna love we're gonna love the screw ups because they're just like us, you know. I mean, isn't there some way that this seems different? Well, yeah, I'm just talking about, you know, external things like I might, you know, give somebody some money or, yeah, you know, right. that's what I'm talking about. But in terms of how I treat them and why I'm treating them that way, and yeah, because when I was a Pharisee back before my pharisectomy, I, I, <laughs> I, I, I did, you know, I tried to love people and I did stuff for them that I thought needed to be done, but it was always condescending. It was me doing something for you and it made me a better person to do it. So it was always self-serving, which is weird to say about loving somebody, but it was always self-serving. And now when you just and I think affection is such a great word. I don't I don't love my children because I have to, I'm supposed to and I try and do loving things for them because I'm a stupid dad after all. I actually genuinely have affection for my adult children. I I love being with them. I love helping them. I love being in their lives and I think that's what's so different. And so, yeah, I, I get your point. It's I, I just meant if you're trying to judge somebody externally, you may not really know what the motives are going on, but on the surf, on uh, inside, and how it's received is incredibly different. People know. I've had people tell me they love me who are trying to fix me, and I know I know they don't love me at all. They're trying to fix me for them. Yeah, it, it feels like they're an Amway salesperson trying to sign you up. Exactly, you're, you're a target for them as opposed to just. Well, and that's most evangelism, isn't it? Unfortunately. It's most evangelism. It's just Amway. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it is. I know what's better for you, and I'm going to manipulate you into doing what is best for your own soul. Or And somehow I benefit from that, too, which is the whole Amway thing. I'm going to benefit if you come along. Yeah, and you hate it when they call you up because you know that they're going to say, come on, just sign up, just join us. And you say, I don't even want to answer the call when they phone me. Yep. Because they're not loving me. And that's why friendships are difficult to incubate in a religious environment, because everybody's performing and everybody's manipulating. So you get a phone call. You're not even excited to get the phone call. But when you're in a relationship with friends who love you, 
who share their sense of brokenness and who no one's trying to pretend they're better and they're not trying to fix anybody else. We're just brothers and sisters sorting out a journey together and trying to let Jesus be exalted in the way we live our lives. That's just so much fun. It's just never is never a bad moment in that kind of uh, a friendship. Right. This kind so, of gets into some of what you put in your checker, or equipping without subduing. And one of the things that you said, you talked about the New, teaching, New Testament teaching was so much resonate more with the word catalyst than leader. Could you comment some more on that? Yeah, I, I think when I see the way Jesus did stuff in the Gospels, and he he wasn't a leader in the sense of, here's what we're all going to do. But he was a catalyst to be alongside people to let God open their eyes to a different reality. So he would ask the provocative question or make the provocative statement and watch how that worked on people's lives over time. And I, I, I think we've come to a time when the word leadership is almost completely a management-based word. We are managing a system and getting people to act accordingly or to respond in ways that sustain whatever we're trying to do. I think a better word might even be the word catalyst or the word facilitator, someone who facilitates the kingdom or facilitates the life of God as it's being known to people. it's, It's a different reality, and it's much more complicated in one sense. I mean, it's easier to make a rule, teach a lesson, make policy, and tell people to do it. It's another thing to come alongside someone and help them discover who God is, how he relates to them, and how that love changes their lives. But I think real leaders are not managers. They're facilitators and catalysts of life. So so we have some chat going on on the chat line here where there's a question saying, let's say somebody reads your book and they completely grab hold of it you know and let, let's say your book was written by god i mean so this is something that they grab hold of okay well, let's not say that <laughs> well, no i mean I'm, I'm just talking about hypothetically okay 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 I'm with so you. hypothetically you know god's hand, god's voice to your hand um so what if they belong to a church what should they do now some might say i want to leave the church and start something brand new some would say i want to stay inside this and transform it what would you say to somebody what do you say about staying inside the organization and trying to transform it from within or getting out and doing something different? Yeah, it reminds me of a question I had in Kenya where a guy was saying, you know, over here in Scripture, Jesus says take a sword, and over here Jesus says not to take a sword. So would we take a sword or not take a sword? And I think the point is you do what Jesus says. I have no idea in a hypothetical situation of whether or not God wants them to continue. Because I don't think the structures are evil. You can be in those structures and live a life in the new creation, have relationships and friendships and not play the performance game. And you might get kicked out of some places in time. You might be a threat to, you might be a threat to others. But I, I don't think the answer is, let's all go start something new. That's, we've, we've done that for 2,000 years. We all go start something new, and then it becomes the same thing a generation later. And so I think the real, my hope is to get people to think in terms of, who is God? How do I begin to walk with Him? And what is He? Do? Who is He telling me to walk? Who is He asking me to walk alongside? Is it people I'm already with in a congregation? Then I would go there. If it's people that aren't there, but we could do other things to be together, then I would be there. And I, I, people too quickly want to change the outside when learning to live loved is primarily an inside thing that it doesn't even get started for a couple of years of. 
And that's what I'd encourage people. You read that, you're excited, you think that something more is what you want. Don't look for the something more being a different methodology or different space. Look at it as being a different kind of relationship, and then God will nudge you toward those places. If it's to have a voice to affect change, then do that. If it's to, this is an unhealthy environment and I need to leave, then do that. But I think Jesus gets to be the head of his church, so he gets to nudge us toward that. I love so, it. Great so, answer. Yeah, sure. Is. So let me ask you a different question. Um, I could see some people hearing this and saying, well, Wayne, that sounds great. You know, we hang out with people who, with whom we have an affection for. We learn, we explore who God is and who we are and how we live love together. But what do you do with the rest of the world that we don't have affection for? It's not interested in hearing about the love of God. What, you know, do, so now do we have these small little enclaves of people, in a, in a sense, separatists now, because they've got their own little world. Now, I'm not really arguing against you, but I'm just wondering, how would you answer that question? Well, I, th- I think what we know about love, real love and affection, is it's not containable. It, you know, God had perfect love in himself and whatever the Trinity is for all eternity, and they just couldn't keep it to themselves. <laughs> they had to create something, and even if it was going to be broken and a bit of a mess, they, they wanted to love, and I, I, honestly, I don't know the person who's growing in the affection of Father who is content not having affection for others. What you find is your affection grows. You find yourself, as the one person wrote, which I think is a brilliant statement, there's no one you wouldn't love if you, if you knew their story. And so I, I don't know who we wouldn't have affection for. If you learn to live relaxed in the Father's affection for you, you will not just seek out friendships that bless you. You will find yourself loving people that are difficult to love. You'll find yourself caring about people because you see them as broken. You don't see them as, you know, horrible, nasty people. They they may act nasty, but they're worthy of love, and the Father loves them. And, and you'll make space in your life for people that you would never believe you'd make space in your life for. So I, I just I think that's one of those false fears of, you know, if we just love people in a relational we'll we'll just end up loving all the people like us well i i can take you all over the world and show you people and that's not true if it if that's what happens then we have to really question whether it's god's love we're experiencing or whether it's just what we define as human love which is mutual accommodation of self-need i like you you like me we do something for each other so we're good but that and that you've got to contain because other people from the outside will disrupt that but real affection, my gosh, you can't contain it. You'll have it for a person sitting next to you on the airplane or in front of you in the shopping line at Home Depot or whatever. You'll find yourself having affection for people and engaging them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. At least that's what I've seen over and over. And that's the miracle of the gospel. It's something beyond you. It is. And, and let it happen. Over. I think what most of us hear this kind of talk, I'm going to do that tomorrow. Well, you have no more ability to do that tomorrow than I have to climb up to the moon tomorrow morning. I mean, as one person said, and I love this statement, everything Jesus asked us to do was impossible for us to do, but not impossible for him to work in us. And that working in us is a process of transformation that takes significant periods of time. We're not just going to become a lover of all humanity tomorrow morning because I've decided I want to do that. We can fake that, but we can't make it real until it's real. 
I asked a group in, in Brazil, we were talking about Father's Affection. I said, how many of you, when you first came to Christ, were told, why don't you just spend the next two years trying to sort out how much God loves you? And there wasn't a person in the room, obviously, because we were all told what it meant to be a good Christian. And here's the hoops we need to jump through. You read your Bible and pray and all good things. Nothing wrong with those things, but we were given things to do to somehow earn his love, and we never even figured out what it was to be loved. And I love it when people, and I just said to him, if you didn't get that chance initially, why don't you take it now? Why don't you take the next two years and just sort out how loved you are by Father? Ask him to show you. Look to understand it. Find ways to grow in it. Don't worry about doing anything else for God. Just sort out what it means to be loved. And that will start you on a journey. It won't, it won't take two years, but if it does, relax enough to let it really happen. And when it does, you'll find yourself living differently in the world. You can't help it. I wish somebody had said that to me in 1973. <laughs> me too. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, me too. Oh, that's such a powerful thing. It's such a revolutionary idea. It sounds like it is. And, uh, you know, John and I both had a Campus Crusade for Christ background. In fact, went on staff for a while, and it was, let's take that excitement and let's go conquer the world now, you know. And uh, so there was, anyway, so, I mean, that's just a revolutionary comment that you made. It's, it's a great idea. And, yeah, I think it undergirds a lot of scripture. you got Paul. I mean, most people think Paul got knocked off his horse on the road to Damascus and the next week was off on his missionary journeys. And there was 14 years of whatever journey he went on to discover what he needed to discover. And I think a lot of things that are done for God are done by people who just got saved and are very zealous and willing to go out and do some wild stuff for God. But it's, it's zeal without knowledge, without reality, and it'll... They'll fall apart in time, and they'll be disillusioned. Mm-hmm. So, so somebody's, convic- somebody's convicted by what you're saying right now, and they're saying, I need to take some time. I, I need to stop what I'm doing. I need to take some time. What do they do? What do you suggest they do? Nothing. I, I, I just said... <laughs> <laughs> Get the do question out of there. Just wake up in the morning saying, Father, would you show your love to me? Would you show it to me? Would you nudge me toward the things that make life work for me and and allow you to be revealed in me and to me? And just go on that journey. I think too quickly we want to do stuff. That's such a language for us. Um, And so I'd say don't do anything. Ask God to do some things. Uh, You know, so you say, well, prayer is what you're doing. maybe, Maybe that's good enough. But really, if we just stop doing all the things we're doing to try and earn God's affection and just said, I need to see it and asked him to show it to us, and watch for him during a day, watch for him for weeks, for months, see where his fingerprints land in our life, what nudges arise in my mind or heart that seem not like me, but more like him, and find your way into that reality. Wayne, can you describe what that actually looked like for you in the early years of this journey for you? Oh, it was ugly. (laughs) I mean, it was so much unraveling and dismantling and disorientation. And uh, somebody used the word detox because my jug of choice was religion. That's what made me a good Pharisee. So part of the Pharisectomy is I've got to learn to live inside of his reality. And I had tastes of that because God's not, God doesn't withhold that. We have, we've all probably had tastes of something beyond ourselves in this tender spot of having that affection but then we, we didn't learn how to live there. We instead learned, well, I, I've got to do more to keep this going. I've got to do more to keep God happy. And, 
And so we ran off down other roads. Um, so in the early days, it's it's incredibly disorienting. It's strange. It helps to hang out with somebody if you know somebody who talks the love love language. Who talk? I don't mean love languages in that book sense. I just mean people that know they're loved. And if you don't know anybody like that, then find somebody who writes stuff like that and and read that kind of stuff. So it centers down in your heart. And you, I, I tell people, you know, if you want to read the anything, read read the Upper Room Discourse. Read John 13, 14, 15, 16. Read it 10 times in, you know, 40 days. And figure out where is this invitation of love and life, this way to the Father, being at home in Him. Um, but really, we do too much. If I, I, one, one weekend I had in New Zealand recently, a group of college kids who are on this journey and trying to sort it out and read some of my stuff and wanted to spend a week with me and they're peppering me with questions. Finally, two of them are driving me to the airport on Sunday afternoon. And I mean, I've had three days just solid, what about this and how do we do this and on and on and on. One lady said to me, her her fiancé and her were taking me to the airport and as we got about two kilometers from the airport, she said, you know, Wayne, I'm beginning to think this. I said, what's that? She said, I think the reason this seems so difficult is because it's more simple than we dare to believe. And so I think a lot of learning to live loved is unraveling our false views of God and our false views of what we're supposed to do to keep him happy. And that unraveling is painful for a lot of us. Mm-hmm. But if you have somebody who will sit with you through it and love you through it, and that, that's, just, that's why I want people in the world who, who can do that. That's what I hope people have a passion for quote-unquote ministry or people that are just are loved enough to know how to help others experience that reality and just be with them until it happens. So God I have sense. to tell you this story. When I Again, going back to reading your article on why you don't go to church anymore and then starting that journey about two years later, when I first read that article, the first it, it actually scared me to think about that. And the thought that crossed my mind was, you know, if I decided to quit going to church and really quit doing all these things I'm doing, I would want to surround myself with some really good men who could make sure I just don't go off on the deep end. Well, now I think years later, and about a year or so ago, I was thinking, I wonder if, if it's time for me to go back into the institution to, to try to take this into, back into the institution. <laughs> and the first thought that crossed my mind was, well, if I do that, I need to surround myself with a good group of men who can make sure I don't go off on the deep end. <laughs> That's quite a change. Uh, well, and, and the, as you describe, our, our just our walk with God with each other, um, boy, you can really see how God really has to be involved because it's just so much easier to put out a little bit of structure, a little bit of railway, so you, you, you supposedly know something's going in the right direction. Just in case Versus, God doesn't show up. Right, yep. and you know, and you want to show up. We got a plan. Yeah, and you want to ensure they don't go off the deep end. <laughs> but I just love this idea that, you know, God has to be intimately involved with that other person and with me every day. Um, so, so, so let me ask you. Let me follow up on John's question to you about what was this like in the early days. Talk to us about how you live that today. You and I talked about this a little bit over breakfast because I was asking, what are your days like? Your, your life like so tell us a little bit how does this how does this play out in your life today um boy it's it's as simple as just waking up every morning and having that 
thought in my heart that I just shared earlier. You know, God, how is it that you're making yourself known to me today? And who is it that you're giving me to love? And, you know, I, one of the things I pray for all the time right now is, God, help me love Sarah in the way you want her love today. That's my wife of almost 40 years. So uh, I, I, I don't... I, the actual doing, I mean, I'm a scripture guy. I'm reading it every day. I'm, But I, I don't have quiet times like I used to. I have an, an ongoing conversation with God that never, and I don't mean I ask him something and I hear an answer. I've got things I hold before him, and then there are times when nudges come or direction or conversation opens a door into something I ought to be thinking. Uh, it's two or three times a week making sure I cross paths with people God's put on my heart. I'm always praying about God, is there people you want me to be with this week, who are they, or people want me to get together and introduce them to each, each other, that's always on my heart, uh, whether I'm home or I'm traveling, either one. Um, it really is just a simple way to live in the growing reality of who he is. And it's it, when you said earlier about trust, it's not that God has to be at work in the other person. God is at work in the other person. God is at work in all of us. The, the day we were born, he's been whispering his affection to our hearts, and we've mostly missed it. First sin twisted us, and then religion twisted us even more. And he was always inviting us into greater space. And when you help people turn on to that reality and even make space for it in their lives and look for it, then they find it. The idea that if I, you know, like, I think it was, was it John or Sam that was saying earlier, you know, I left the church, i got to surround me with some good men so I don't go off the deep end. The, re- the reality is Jesus is our good shepherd and he will protect us. We, we were taught that we weren't safe. If you try to follow Jesus, you could end up in the weeds of all kinds of heresies. The fact is if you're going to follow Jesus, he's big enough to hold you and protect you and lead you and show you when you're off in the weeds and invite you back to a better path. He, he's better at this than any human being on the planet could possibly be. And we haven't t- taught people to trust that. We've said, no, trust us instead, because, you know, people following Jesus do stupid things. No, people following Jesus don't do stupid things. People who think they're following Jesus and aren't do stupid things. Well, that's different. Yeah, that's good. That's a winner well, line right there. People, anyway. I, I can't even repeat it. People who aren't following Jesus but do stupid things. <laughs> so stupid things. So it's people much- who think they're following Jesus but aren't do stupid things, right? Something like that. <laughs> okay. And most heresies really didn't rise from somebody following Jesus. They rose from somebody who wanted to lead a group of people to follow Jesus the way they wanted them to. That's where yeah. heresies right. come from. They don't yeah. come from people who just... My dad was a farmer, and just work in his great vineyard, come back and share the things that God put on his heart that day. And I just thought, you know what, this this was never, a, this was always meant to be for very common people learning to follow him. And we only mess it up when we put it into big religious structures and somebody needs to be the leader and boss other people around. That's where bad stuff comes from, always. Hmm. Wayne, this has been so good. I mean, we have gone 50 minutes now, and it's been Tremendous. So thank you, Wayne, so much. 